series. A couple weeks ago, Tucker got us started by looking at the introduction, and this evening I'm looking at chapter 1, and I'll be reading from the book of 1 John, chapter 4, page 863 in the Pew Bibles as we get started this evening. And if you're willing and able, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. 1 John, chapter 4. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Over the last 20 years or so, Pastor Tim Keller has had the opportunity to ask many people this question, what is your biggest objection to Christianity? What is your biggest problem with Christianity? And he says that the most frequent response that he has heard can be summed up in one word, exclusivity. Or in one question, how can only one religion be true? How can Christians say that they have the right answer and everyone else is wrong? How can they believe that? And all across America, people are asking that question. How can just one religion be true? From celebrities like Oprah Winfrey to people in my own family and probably people in yours too. They're asking how can just one religion be true? And they believe that they are on their way to heaven, but they don't believe that Christianity is the way to get there. And so this evening, as we take a few moments to dive into this topic, I want to invite you to do something. I want to invite you to ask the Holy Spirit to lay a person on your heart, a real person. Because when we talk about these things and what people believe, I don't want us to just speak in generalities. Because we're talking about real people with real eternal souls. So I just ask that we take a moment to pray, that you would make it personal, that you would think of a name and a face and a person in your life who might be in this situation. Let's pray before we get started.
Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And we thank you that in your mercy and grace, you have opened our eyes so that we can see it. And you have called us out of darkness and sin and death. And you've invited us into your family. Lord, we pray that your spirit will work, work in our hearts and lives to give us a deep burden for those who cannot see the beauty of Christ, who cannot see that he is the way, the truth, and the life. May we love them. May we pray for them. Lord, we pray that you would work in their hearts right now, that even during this time, you might call them home to yourself. May you open our eyes that we would continue to see wonderful things out of your word. May your spirit teach us, and may we apply what we learn for your glory and the good of your kingdom. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This evening, it's my desire to just ask and, and attempt to answer three basic questions. The first question is, how do we answer that question? How can just one religion be true? The second question is, what makes Christianity different? And then the final question would be, what, does, what difference does that difference make in our lives? In other words, what difference does the difference of Christianity make in us? What effect does Christianity have on us? So the first question is this, how do we answer the question, how can just one religion be true? And in his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller deals with what philosophers call defeater beliefs. That is, every culture that's hostile to Christianity, including our own American culture, holds a set of common sense, consensus beliefs that, if true, make Christianity seem implausible, as if it could not be true. So a defeater belief is this. It says, if belief A is true, then that means belief B cannot be true. So, for example, if belief A, all religions are equally valid, if that is true, then that means by default that belief B, Christianity, which says Jesus is the only way, cannot be true. And that's what they call a defeater belief. If all religions are equally valid, then that would necessarily mean that Christianity cannot be true. And so Keller deals with a number of these in his book, and his aim in dealing with these beliefs is not to necessarily answer them or to refute them, but is to deconstruct them, to show people that they're not as strong or as valid as they might originally appear, to show them that these objections, these defeated beliefs, are really alternate belief systems. So just as Christians put their faith in Jesus, our friends who have these defeater beliefs are putting their faith, their hope in something else, in some other view of God, really. So he's not necessarily trying to reason people into the kingdom of God. Instead, he's trying to break down some of the barriers to help them understand what they believe and to encourage them to consider Jesus Christ. That's what we want to do this evening as well. Well, objections to Christianity are nothing new. In fact, if you look back at our passage here in 1 John Chapter 4, verse 1 tells us, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. 
Way back in the New Testament, in the time of Christ, we already had false prophets, false teachers, false spirits out in the world proclaiming things that were not true, that did not line up with Christianity. And we see the same thing today expressed in that question. How can just one religion be true? Now, one way that that question is expressed is in what I've already mentioned. All religions are equally valid. And so our friends might say that to us, and they might say, Christians seem to overplay the differences between Christianity and all the other religions. There's millions of people who have had an encounter with God, who say that their lives have been changed, their characters have been changed because of their experience of faith. And how can Christians insist that they have a monopoly on the truth, that they have the only way to heaven, that their religion is the only one that is right and true? And so when our friends think of that, they think that the exclusivity of that is staggering. And they find it highly offensive. But in deconstructing this defeater belief that seems to make Christianity implausible, we want to make plain that all religions are making exclusive truth claims. They all believe that certain beliefs are right and true, and others are wrong and false. This is true even for atheists and agnostics. An atheist will say, there is no God. An agnostic will say, I cannot know God. I cannot know if there is a God. In each case... Those claims are excluding other claims, nullifying other claims such as Christianity, which says there is one true God and you can know him. And all we're asking for is that our friends would have some intellectual honesty. Because no matter what people say they believe, everybody is making an exclusive statement about reality and about the nature of God, who he is, who we are, what's gone wrong, and what the solution to our problem is. So if you have a a name in your mind, maybe somebody who's struggling with this question, and our friends might say, how can just one religion be true? All religions are equally valid. That statement can only be true if either there is no God, or God is unknowable, an impersonal force who doesn't care what you believe about him, or perhaps they might believe that God is loving but not wrathful. But all of those are beliefs about the nature of God. And they're exclusive claims that exclude other beliefs about God. The point is just to get people to realize that they also are putting their faith in something. Another way they might say it, besides just every religion is equally valid, is they might say each religion sees only part of spiritual truth. Nobody can see the whole truth. And so it's arrogant for anybody to claim that they have the whole truth and then try to convert others to their religion, their view of it. And and they use a common illustration, a simple illustration to support this viewpoint. If you've read the book, it's in the book. You probably have heard it before. It's the illustration of the blind men and the elephant. A group of blind men come upon an elephant and one of them stumbles into the trunk and starts to feel the trunk and he'll say, oh, this this is an elephant. It's, It's like a big snake. And another one will stumble onto the back and grab a hold of the tail and feel the tail and say, no, this, this is an elephant and it's like a rope. Another one will stumble into the side and feel the side of the elephant and say, no, an elephant's not like that at all. An elephant is, is big, like a big rough wall. And another elephant will stumble into one of the legs and say, no, that's not right. An elephant is this, like a big tree trunk, solid and firm and stable. 
And so they'll say, that's what religion is like. Everybody has, you know, nobody's completely right, nobody's really wrong. It's just different perspectives depending on where you, you stumble onto the elephant. But the problem with that illustration is that it backfires on itself, doesn't it? Because that story is told from the perspective of somebody who is not blind. It's told from the perspective of somebody who can see the whole elephant, somebody who can do what they say you can't do. And that is have this superior, comprehensive knowledge of the entire truth. So how could you possibly know that no religion can see the whole truth unless you yourself have that superior, comprehensive knowledge of spiritual reality that you say nobody can have? So when our friends say that no one religion could possibly be true, they're assuming a very particular view of God. And they're saying that that view of God is better than everybody else's, better than the rest. And in fact, they're trying to convert you to their way of seeing things. So let us just understand that it's no more arrogant or narrow to say that there's only one true religion, one way of salvation, salvation than it is to say that there is one way of looking at all religions. But I would say you can be arrogant in the way you make that statement. And we'll talk about that as we get to our third question. One last way they might present this question, this dilemma, how can just one religion be true? They might say uh, that basically all religions teach the same thing. We all worship the same God. And I'm so glad Carol's here this evening. She's preached some of my sermon for me already, you know, and, and if our friends are doing that, we need to gently and lovingly confront them with the truth that that is simply not true. Christians do not worship the same God that Muslims do. Christians do not worship the same God that Jews do. Hinduism and Buddhism do not present the same God as the God of the Bible. Christians do not worship the same God that Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses worship. There's a fundamental difference. And that's what I want to turn to next. The next question is, what is it that makes Christianity different? Again, back to 1 John chapter 4. Listen to verses 2 and 3 again. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. John tells us that what you believe about Jesus Christ makes all the difference. Jesus Christ is everything. And he's telling us two very important things about Jesus in this passage. Uh, one explicitly, one implied, but made clear other, other places in Scripture. He says that Jesus has come in the flesh. See, John was already counteracting a false teaching that, that Jesus was not truly man. He was not truly human. But John is saying Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. He's fully man. Saying the same thing we read in 1 Timothy where it says there is one God and one mediator between man and God, the man Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came. He was fully man. He had to be fully man in order to pay the penalty that our sin deserved. But he also says something interesting there. He says in verse 3, every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Why does he say that? Has come. What does that mean? Well, I think he's implying there that Jesus has come into the world. That means 
He existed before he came into the world. It wasn't that he was just born, but that he was here before he came into the world. He says this very clearly in uh, 1 John 1, verse 1, and then also in his gospel that he wrote at the very beginning. But 1 John 1, verse 1, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we've seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. That which was from the beginning was with the Father. John 1, 1 is gospel. In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus Christ. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So what is true of Jesus Christ is what makes Christianity so different from every other religion in the world. Jesus Christ, fully man, fully God. Christianity says that in Jesus Christ, God has come into the world. God himself. And Jesus proved that he was God when God raised him from the dead and confirmed everything that he had said about himself. So in Christianity, you do not simply have a prophet, as Muslims would have you believe. You do not simply have a teacher, but you have God himself. And that is the difference between Christianity and all other religions. Religion is about man trying to reach God. Christianity is about God coming down to rescue and redeem mankind. Religion is man-made, invented in the minds of men. Christianity originated in the mind of God himself. It was his eternal plan. Well, not only does Christianity have a true Savior, both God and man But the way of salvation also distinguishes Christianity from all other religions. All the religions of the world are spelled D-O, do. It's all about what you have to do to earn your salvation, to earn your way to heaven, to be good enough to attain some level of glory. The problem is it's like a salesman who knows he has to reach a sales quota to earn that, but he's never told what it is. And so he can never attain it. And what's even worse, the Bible makes it clear that that's impossible to do. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there's no one who can earn his own salvation. Religion is spelled D-O. Focuses on what you have to do. But Christianity is spelled differently. Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E. Done. It's all about what Christ has already done for us on our behalf. He lived the perfect life we never could live. And then he willingly died on the cross to pay the penalty that we owed for the wrongs we had committed. See, in all other religions, you must perform the truth in order to be saved. You must love God. You must love your family. You must love your neighbor. And if God sees you loving him and loving others, then he will bless you and save you. But this is not what the gospel says at all. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. 
and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's not that we had loved God. It's not that we were able to love others or able to love our neighbors. But it's that he came and he sacrificially pours out himself for people who don't love him. For people who aren't good enough. For people who aren't loving others. So he is not mainly a teacher who comes to show us the way to live so we can earn salvation on our own. He is a savior who lives the life we couldn't live and dies the death we deserved. Paul Rogers is an elder here at the church, a volunteer in our youth ministry, leads our, our music, and he's written a song that expresses this. It's called The Man I Needed to Be. And the chorus goes like this. It's singing praise and thanksgiving to Jesus Christ. He says, thank you for living the life that I could not. Thank you for dying the death that I would not. Jesus, thank you for being the man I needed to be. This is what sets Christianity apart. This is great news. This means that those who are not good, those who do not love God, they have hope. Their sins can be forgiven. They can receive the free gift of salvation. This is the good news, the gospel. It's the best news that the world has ever heard. This is what Jesus tells us in John 14, 6, which might be the most exclusive claim ever made by anyone when Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And one pastor, on commenting on this passage, said that perhaps what we ought to realize from this statement, not just that it's an exclusive statement, which it is, but that Jesus is the only one who's coming for us. There is no other God coming to save us. There is no other God who's able to save us. There is no other God who cares for us or loves us and is willing to come and save us. And while our friends might be offended that Jesus says he is the way and no one comes except through him, perhaps we ought to be thankful that there is any way at all. Especially considering what had to happen for Christ to provide that way. God himself had to become a man, and he had to live and suffer in this world, and he had to be put to death for things that you had done, things that I had done. So that the way could be provided, a way back to God. No one else is coming for us. There is no other way. There is no other God who cares for us and loves us. In Acts 4, it says, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name given under heaven to men by which we must be saved. It's Christ and Christ alone. And Isaiah Chapter 45, God calls out, there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. There is no other. Christ came that you may have life. Will you come to him 
today. Perhaps you're here tonight and you were asking that question. How can just one religion be true? And I would call on you to consider believing on Christ. The only Savior. The only way. I call on you to come to him even now. To consider believing on him. To consider his claims. If you have not done so, I encourage you to read the Gospel of John. Another book that's written by the author of this letter we read tonight. Consider the claims of Christ. Come to the one who came for your salvation. Well, finally, our third question. What difference does the difference of Christianity make in our lives? What effect does it have on us? Because you see, understanding the gospel, seeing Jesus for who he is, it transforms our lives and we are never the same. It makes us people that are characterized by at least three things. The first one is found here in 1 John chapter 4. When we understand the difference of Christianity, when we have an encounter with Jesus Christ, it makes us a people who are characterized by love. Characterized by love. Uh, Verse 11 of chapter 4. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Because God is love, because he showed his love for us in sending his son for us, we ought also ought to love one another now that he lives in us. John Stott said this of this passage, No one who has been to the cross and seen God's immeasurable and unmerited love displayed there can go back to a life of selfishness. When you see the love of Christ displayed for you on the cross, it changes you at the inner being of who you are. You cannot go back to a life of selfishness. Christians are characterized by love. What kind of love? Verse 11 says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We are to be characterized by the same kind of love that God had for us, a selfless love. That means we consider others as more important than ourselves. We put the needs of others before ourselves. This was a sacrificial love. It cost Christ dearly to make a way for our salvation. Are we willing to love others in this church sacrificially, to put their needs before us? Will it cost us time or money or our interests? But God calls us to love one another in this way. It is a purposeful love. Christ came to show us the love of the Father. It was planned out in advance. Do you think about, do you spend time thinking about how you can show love to others among our congregation? Do you see needs and strive to fulfill them and meet them as you are able to? It is a persistent, steadfast, faithful love. He does not give up. He pursues his people. He brings them home to the end. It's a love that is in it for the long haul. And what is amazing, in verse 12, it says this, No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another... God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So what's John saying here? He's saying 
that while people cannot see God face to face, he's a spirit, doesn't have a body as we do, they can't see him in all his glory. If they see him in all his glory, they would die. But what he says is they can see him by his love displayed in us. So by the way, by the way that we as a church show the love of God for one another, it will show people what God is like. And I would hope and pray that we could do that in such a way that people would not say, how can just one religion be true? But they would see us and they would say, how can Christianity not be true when we see the love of Christ displayed in these people. Well, a second characteristic that it gives us is humility. Humility. James 4 says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You know, being a Christian does not mean, first and foremost, that you have all the right answers, that you are right and everybody else is wrong. It means, to some extent, that you realize that you are not a good person. You are not loving. You are not good. And there's nothing you can do to change it. You need to be rescued by a source outside of yourself. So what does this say about every Christian? What does it say is true of every Christian? What does it say is true of you, if you name the name of Christ, of me? It says, I am a sinner. You are a sinner. And you're probably a much bigger sinner than you think you are. In fact, this is what Tim Keller says. He says, the gospel is that I am far worse than I ever imagined. I am far worse than I ever imagined. And at the same time, I am more loved and accepted by God than I ever dared hope for because of Jesus' death for me. If you understand the gospel, it can't help but lead to humility. I am not good. There is no good in me. I am not a Christian because I am a good person. I'm a Christian because Jesus died for me, a vile sinner. So as we share the message of Jesus being the only way, we don't do it with arrogance and pride as if we're right and you are wrong. We don't do it with any sense of superiority at all. We do it with humility and compassion and respect as people who have been rescued and have a deep desire to see others be rescued as well. May you never forget where you were apart from Christ. May you never forget what you would be apart from Christ. See, salvation is not only something that we don't deserve. It's something that we could never earn. In fact, not only is it something that we don't deserve and something that we could never earn, salvation is something we did not even desire. Every one of you here today who can call Christ his Savior was at one point in your life on a one-way path to a Christless eternity. You were loving your sin and hating your God and you were perfectly content to stay on that path. And the only reason you are not on that path today is because God sent his son to die in your place and then he came to you and he gave you life when you were dead. 
You did not call out to him until he called you to himself softly and tenderly. Jesus drew you home. And apart from that, you would still be blind to the truth of Jesus Christ, just like the person that may be on your mind tonight. Never forget that. Never stop being amazed at the wonder of your salvation. Never stop asking, why me? Why me? You can't answer that question, but you say, why me? Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Why me? Put a name on it. Why am I here? And not Sarah. Why am I here? And not Steve. Why are we worshiping together here and not over at the Jewish Community Center? It's only because of the grace of God at work in your life. Undeserved, unmerited, not even desired. We must give thanks to God. We must be humble. We must never stop asking these questions as long as they drive us to the cross and humble gratitude and thanksgiving and worship and praise of Christ. Thanksgiving for who he is. Well, just a final quick word. Not only does it make us people who love, people characterized by humility, but it also makes us a people passionate for Christ and compassionate for others. When your eyes have been opened to the beauty of who Christ is, when you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, when you've seen that though he was rich, yet for your sake he, he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich, when you've seen Christ and your eyes have been opened to him, you want more. You want to fix your gaze on Christ so that you may see him and love him. I encourage the students to pray this prayer. I encourage you to pray this prayer every day. Three things pray that we might see Christ more clearly. That we would see Christ more clearly. That we would love him more dearly. That we would follow him more nearly. And it's a, it's, it's a natural progression. When you see Christ more clearly, you will love him more dearly because he is lovely. And when you see him and his beauty and his glory, you can't help but love him. And when you love him, what does that mean? It means you will follow him more nearly. Christ opens our eyes. It makes us passionate for him because he is more beautiful and more glorious, more precious than anything in this world. And we don't put our hope in the things of this world. We put our hope in Christ. And then it also makes us compassionate for others because what is our great desire? Listen, in 2 Corinthians it says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see they cannot see. They cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. They cannot see it. And we can't make them see it. So what do we do? We better pray and plead for them that God would open their eyes and then we act like signposts and anything that we can do to point them to Christ. We try to remove these barriers so that they would consider Christ for who he is. We do it with compassion because we're so thankful that our eyes have been opened to Jesus, the only way. 
And it's our heart's desire that others can see Christ for who he is. It's our heart's desire that God would use us in such a way so that people, instead of asking how can only one religion be true, they would say, how can Christianity not be true? Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Let us pray. Father, we say thank you. We thank you that in your mercy and grace, for the praise of your glorious grace, according to your good pleasure, in the infinite reaches of your wisdom, and for your glory alone, you have called us to yourself. We recognize what a tremendous privilege it is to be part of the people of God. We ask that each day you would give us a greater vision, a greater picture of the glory of Christ, that we would see him for who he is, and may that transform our lives. And Lord, we pray for people who have not seen Christ yet. I pray for the people that are on the hearts and minds of the people in this room right now. Lord, we ask that you would open their eyes, that they might see Christ, that they would believe on him, that they would turn to him for salvation, that they would love you and love that you are the way instead of rebelling against you. We know that you can do it because you've done it in our lives. You're doing it every day all over the world. You are bringing your people home to yourself. May you do it in our midst that we would give you praise and honor and glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.